Welcome to the Health Tech Invest podcast powered by Nutera Ventures, your guide to healthcare investing. Join us as we explore interviews with pioneering entrepreneurs, investors, and innovative leaders, helping you spark innovation in the world of venture capital investing. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Clues from the Health Tech Invest podcast. I've got an exciting guest for you all today. His name is Neil Tawari, who is an investor on the healthcare and technology strategies at Magnetar Capital. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Just one thing off the top from our end is I want to note that my views are my own uh, and I'm not speaking on behalf of Magnetar its affiliates or any of their respective employees. And with that, I'm ready to dive in. Awesome. Awesome. No, I appreciate you you sharing that context. I think that's important for the listeners here. I'd like for you to just tell us a little bit about yourself and what got you into the healthcare space. Uh, that's a great question. Interestingly, I think I would probably start with I've always been a nerd. <laughs> I was always a science junkie. And growing up, my favorite TV show was Nova on PBS. And kind of the long story short was growing up, I... um had a, a deep passion for the science as, and specifically, if you were to ask me what I wanted to be when I grow up, when I was you know, 10 years old, it would have been an astrophysicist. I was really interested in, in kind of going into that space. And then once I found... Amazing. Uh, yeah, once I found that astrophysicists make no money, I was like, <laughs> I have to uh, change this. And then I think the other piece was always super interested in technology. And so I you know, I took my first programming class when I was in elementary school. And it was like, I don't even know if it was called programming at that time. And so it was kind of the, a passion for kind of computer science alongside um, the general sciences. And that's actually kind of evolved into, you know, when I got into high school and I, I did, you know, I, an interesting quick story is kind of my passion for both of these things really started from joining what I would call, we had these Rube Goldberg design competitions back in high school. And it was, you know, really around build. If you're not familiar with those, you're building these giant contraptions using technology, hardware, software to do an easy task with as many mechanical and electronic steps as possible. And so you can imagine this massive contraption. I literally spent (laughs) years of my life building those things competitively. And then it was actually my uh, AP bio teacher that, that got me interested in, in life sciences. And so uh, I actually didn't even know this major existed. And I think the funny story is you and I both went to the same college and majored in the same major, biomedical engineering. I didn't even know that was a thing until I was kind of applying to the schools. And it was really that combination and, and passion of healthcare, life sciences, really getting interested in that in, in my AP bio classes in high school, alongside just technology, right? Computer science and technology and trying to put those two pieces together. And the outcome was biomedical engineering. I knew nothing about it when I started at at Northwestern alongside you. Very interesting. It it sounds like biomedical engineering was kind of a, a kind of a combination of your deep passion for science. Did you have a knack for bio? Was there a particular vision you had? Were you thinking of going to medical school? Yeah. Did you want to build artificial lungs? What was your kind of motivation there? I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do when I started college, but what, what I knew is I was pre-med actually. So I, I did do all the pre-med. I unfortunately as a freshman, I'm, I'm sitting there taking organic chemistry questioning why I chose to do that. But yeah, I was pre-med actually when I started college and 
It was actually when I uh, did my, and, and as a biomedical, as an engineer in the engineering program, and I think you did this too, but they have a co-op program where you can yes, um, yes. work part-time or for quarters at a time as you're in school. And, and that's when I actually took an engineering co-op at a, at a medical device company. And yeah, it was all about building things. And I kind of had that, I like building things mentality from high school and from even, even younger than that. And I think that's actually what made me decide to abandon going to medical school. And it was like my third year of um, undergrad when I officially said, you know what, I'm going to stop doing all this pre-med stuff and then focus on um, actually becoming an engineer. I mean, actually building things because I think I realized that was my real passion. Interesting. Interesting. I love that you say you had a passion for building things. I think it would be important characterization for the listeners for you to kind of illustrate how did you go from wanting to sort of build things to becoming an investor, right? Oh, yeah. I, think, I think a lot of folks don't acknowledge investing as building companies, but it actually, as an investor myself, I believe it's all about building companies, but love to kind of understand what motivated you to go from engineering to, to operations to investing. No, it's funny. Whenever you ask this question, I feel like to anyone, you get a lot of different answers because at least what I've seen and learned is that the pathway to becoming an investor in this space is like there is no single pathway. Everyone has a very unique story. And at least for me, I didn't even know what venture capital was when I was probably in college. And I, I had no interest in moving into the investment side when I started my career in R&D and kind of building things more, I call it physically, and doing research and development. I really enjoyed those things. And the transition from that into investing is def was definitely non-traditional. And I would say that it started with, I started building med devices and kind of digital health solutions in my first career at Baxter. And it was during that time I, I had an opportunity to work with kind of a small startup design firm out on the East Coast and was kind of living at their site. And it was, I was working at a big company, but I was the lead engineer on this program partnered with effectively a startup company. And that's what started to get me interested in the startup scene. Cause I was like, wow, the pace is so much faster. The ability to innovate, red tape, bureaucracy, like all of those things were kind of eliminated. And I think that got me really excited and passionate about kind of the startup scene. And I recall that, that got me interested to learn Okay, well, how can I, as an engineer in a, in a you know, 50,000 person company, get more involved with the startup scene? And so I would find opportunities moonlighting either with the IP team at, at my first firm where we were doing kind of technology diligences on new technologies and new companies and kind of just brainstorming ideas and finding ways to apply that skill set in those kind of non-traditional ways was kind of where I started. And then that one thing led to another. And there was a lot of serendipity here where I ended up moving out to California around that time, joining a farm, a large pharma biotech company, supporting their digital health strategy. And the actual moment when I got introduced into kind of venture capital and really thinking about that as an opportunity was 100% serendipity where we had a corporate venture arm that was not based in California. But they would occasionally come out to California for doing diligences and they had their cubicle right next to where my cubicle was. That's literally how I got interact, interfaced with them, had a lunch and then started helping them with diligences. And that ended up 
that was actually the DRX team that we were you know both working on together. And that was 100% serendipity in terms of how I got involved. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. What gave you, I mean, what, were you hooked then? Was you, were you immediately hooked? Were you, and, and what about the industry got you pumped? I think the thing that got me hooked was I loved, it comes back to that concept of building things. And I think when I was in R&D, it can take you five, seven, 10 years to build a single product, which is great. I've done that. I really enjoyed my time doing that. But being able to kind of parallelize that and be involved with 10, 15, 20 opportunities that you're involved in the launch and creation of, of many solutions at the same time. I think that's really what got me hooked because I was like, okay, I can stay with what I'm doing and this is really interesting and I can make an impact, but it's one particular, call it product every five, seven years, whereas I can do 30 of these in that same time frame if I'm an investor and I can kind of provide the expertise I had as a builder to these companies. And I think I started learning that, wow, I actually... There's a niche of experience that's useful that I can kind of provide kind of from a mentorship perspective to a lot of these startups that are just getting get, getting their feet off the ground. And so I think that's kind of what really got me hooked. I not, and, you know, I would say the answer is not something that I think is, uh, you know, I was hooked instantly. And that's awesome. something that continued to grow from there. Awesome. And what made you, so you, you start on the corporate venture side on behalf of a biotech company, what, what made you transition more to a financial institution like Magnetar? I think the, the real um, transition point was an interest in kind of being able to invest in a broader selection of opportunities and also mm -hmm. to invest in opportunities where end goal and the end product is the investment itself. And I think you probably experienced this coming out of CBC as well, is I learned a lot. Obviously, being a corporate venture investor, I really enjoyed my time there. But there are certain limitations with the strategic fit of certain investments. How impactful is it to the business? And then there's always the concept around how important are these small investments to the broader parent organization. And I think for some of them, they are, and some of them, they aren't. And I think I wanted to be kind of moving closer to an environment where in the investing itself was the product. And it wasn't just a side business, which is kind of it, how it tends to be in corporate venture capital. Very interesting. You work with both. Thank you for sharing that journey. I know that's been a, a very interesting one. And I appreciate you kind of opening up about how it really started in childhood, your interest in building things. So I, I love that. I absolutely love that about your your background. But what kind of advice would you give to someone you work with investors and entrepreneurs alike, but what would you, what type of advice would you give someone who is looking to become an investor, right? In the healthcare space, a venture capitalist, a growth investor, what advice would you give them to kind of strengthen their kind of CV yeah. to position themselves for it? I think the most important thing is, um, you know, there's a concept of breadth versus depth. And to me, the best way to make an impact and to get started is to utilize a piece of knowledge, an expertise, a skill set that you have that you, you're really deep in and finding a way to utilize that and contributing to an investment or contributing to an entrepreneur. And I think that's the key is that the best way to make early traction in this is to really find out 
what is that super unique skill set, experience, knowledge that you have? It could be extremely narrow and niche, but the idea is start with that and find a way to apply that to a company, to an entrepreneur and provide that mentorship, guidance, feedback, support, the network connections that entrepreneur needs. And that's kind of the, uh, I like to say that building a career in, in venture and investing is a lot like the snowball effect. It has to, it starts with one kind of grain or one snowflake and it kind of slowly kind of grows over time. But it's finding that individual piece of experience and knowledge that you have that you can apply to a particular business that really gets you started. And it kind of slowly grows kind of quite frankly, organically from there. Awesome advice. Thank you for for sharing that. I um, I'm gonna you know pivot a little bit to kind of the investment landscape that you're focused on today. I think listeners out there would be really interested to hear about what are some of the trends that that you've seen affect your investment strategy or your investment business. I think the two largest ones, and, and not to pile on to the bandwagon of what everyone's saying, I think that the, the two biggest ones are really. Artificial intelligence and machine learning is, is probably the first one. And the second one, I would probably characterize as business model updates in healthcare and in technology. And what I mean by that are finding novel ways to tie technology in the healthcare life sciences space. And so that could include things like a hardware as a service business model, which really didn't exist in those industries historically, in infrastructure as a, as a service model. SaaS really coming to life in those areas, as well as kind of new models for reimbursement. And so it's the combination to me of really those two things. One is technology, AI and machine learning in combination with these business model updates. So when you put those two together, I think there's just a huge synergy between those uh, two areas. Interesting. So updates to business models, would, would you say business models in the health tech space, have they been broken in the past? Are these improvements, updates, yeah. modifications? What, what's been sort of inspiring some of these updates? I think the inspiration is really, I think, twofold. One, the healthcare and life sciences space has been so not known as being a digital first or technology first sector. Sure. And historically, those are, everything's IT, right? And it's just a side piece of the business. And so I think from a business model perspective, at least what I'm saying is these new technologies are not traditionally being sold to these life sciences and healthcare companies. There isn't a business model that exists for that sector historically. And I think um, these businesses are taking a lead from the technology sector where these business models are established and finding ways to what I would say is customize those business models to fit within, let's say, a pharma or biotech's budget, as an example, is something that I think I'm starting to see. And, and what I mean by that is there's a, a just a short example. I'm involved with a company uh, that focuses on lab automation uh, for drug discovery and, and basically has a a robotics platform that supports the acceleration of drug discovery. And one of the things that they kind of figured out from a business model perspective was there's a way to provide that equipment at the site of where the R&D is happening at a pharma or biotech company and then monetize it over time through a software license and, and, and recurring SaaS revenue. 
And that's something that has never really been done before. And I think it was really solving for kind of two elements. One element was, you know, the farm and biotech company wanted that technology on-prem, not off-prem, but then creating a business model that kind of supported the long-term deployment of that technology in the budget constraints and cycles of things like that exist within the parent, that parent entity. Very interesting. Very exciting space. Very meaningful insights for our listeners. So thank, thanks for sharing that. I'm going to change things up a little bit to, back to your journey, your both your personal and professional experiences here. But question for you is, what would you say one of your biggest setbacks have been along this journey to becoming an investor? And, and what did you learn from it? You know, when I think of setbacks, I would probably think of one specific example. And, and I wouldn't say it was a setback. It was more of a learning experience of being an investor. And I think obviously the investment market has changed a lot in the last couple of years. Everyone looked like a smart investor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when every six months, any one of your companies is raising, you know, double the previous valuation, obviously that's no longer the case. And so it was easy, I would say, historically to become a tied, you're betting on a founder and you're betting on a management team. And once you're in, you want to do as much as you can to help them be successful. But I think one of the biggest lessons that I had was really understanding when a certain change at the management or CEO level needs to take place and kind of doing that at the right time, that there is no right time, A, and at any time you're always, most likely when you actually choose to make that decision, it's probably long overdue Then definitely have had a few experiences where we let that drag out. And overall, it was because you were so embedded and so tied to the success of that individual that you placed a bet on. And I think sure. it's the natural sure. bias that we have. And I think that's something that I've really had to learn is to try to take that bias out of kind of my investment management and, and kind of decision practice. If you just always have to do what's best for the company. And it's hard, but that's definitely something that I've really had to learn is you have to learn to trust your mm -hmm. instinct and, and really make those tough decisions. And that's part of the job. How, how do you balance that with, obviously you want to be thoughtful, methodical, and objective, but also it sounds like you have to make decisions quickly too. Yeah. You want something to drag out. And I think I know what that setback you're referring to is referring to, but it'd be interesting to get, how do you balance the, the thoughtful, methodical, but yet make quick decisions when appropriate? I think it's, um, so if, if, you were to go, if I were to go back and say, what would I do differently? I think the, the key thing would be being very hyper clear on expectations the key metrics for the business, the KPIs, what are the metrics that we're, we're trying to achieve? Yeah. What's the timeline that we're trying to achieve this in? And really getting it papered very clearly between both sides, what the true expectations are. And then it's a lot easier because it's easy to, to look at those metrics and say like, look, we've tried all these different things. Something's not working. And it makes that you have data to really utilize to make that decision quickly. And I think it's setting of those expectations as uncomfortable sometimes as it can be. It's much better, far better to have those uncomfortable conversations up front and setting those expectations and then using that to guide your decision making. It'll be better for everyone overall and, and it leads to much a much more efficient process. Very cool. Very cool. Thanks for sharing that. That's actually uh, really thought provoking and I'm sure listeners will appreciate that. Neil, it Thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure having you. 
before you go, I would love to hear what what's your call to action to our listeners and where can they follow you and your work? Yeah, great. I think that the main thing is we're all seeing a lot of changes in this market and there's a lot of negative news out there in terms of businesses that are struggling. You're seeing businesses not achieve what they were originally set out to do. And I think with that context and backdrop, I think there still are huge opportunities to build category defining companies. It really comes down to the one piece of the call to action or one piece of advice is both hyper focus on your value proposition for the problem you're trying to solve and ensuring that you have the key metrics around achieving that value proposition very clearly communicated and clearly show your traction towards those and get rid of everything else. Like the ones, the companies, the entrepreneurs, the investors that are going to be hyper-focused on that, I think are, are going to be involved in really creating some category-defining companies in this environment. So that'd probably be my call to action. And then that you can follow me on, on LinkedIn and that's where you can learn a little bit more about what we're up to. Amazing. Thank you again, Neil. For all you listeners out there, I'm Tom Clues. Thank you for joining us on Health Tech Invest, where we promote great people, great entrepreneurs, and spark innovation. Thanks for joining us, Neil. Really appreciate your time. Thanks again, Tom. Thank you for joining us on the Health Tech Invest podcast, powered by Nigera Ventures, your go-to source for healthcare and tech venture investing. For additional information, resources, and ways to connect with us, please visit NigeraVentures.com. Together, let's spark innovation for the future of tech and healthcare investing.